conspiracy theories, government deception, and alternative facts. This is the subject of an Epic's original docuseries about Watergate. This is Slow Burn. Based on the award-winning podcast, host Leon Nafok explores the conspiracies, deception, and the stranger-than-fiction people that set the White House on fire. Watch Slow Burn, starting Sunday, February 16th at 10, 9 central, only on Epics. You know, as a volunteer, I cannot tell you how at this time in my life, I feel like I'll travel the country for her. Hey, Nerdcasters. We've got someone we want you to meet this week. My name's Alice. Alice Yaker. This is Alice Yaker. How do you spell that? Y-A-K-E-R. And I'm your host, Scott Bland. That's B-L-A-N-D. And how old are you? 78. And Alice was in conversation with our reporter, Stephanie Murray, at Amy Klobuchar's party in New Hampshire on Tuesday night, primary night. It was so energetic and kind of crazy, and I knew I wanted to find someone to talk to, and I spotted Alice hugging a Klobuchar volunteer. And why can't you stop smiling? And she couldn't stop grinning. Because I feel like I'm a kid. I feel like I'm a kid in this campaign. I've been volunteering for the last year. I've been organizing New Yorkers to come up here to tell, you know, to phone bank here. I've come up here several times. I've come to Iowa. I never expected that at this time in my life, I would find a candidate that is so compelling. I, I, I never thought I would feel this way since Obama, but I do, and I am all in. So we talked a fair bit about Bernie Sanders and his win in New Hampshire in our Tuesday night special, and what it means for his campaign going forward. Right now, we're going to get into Amy Klobuchar's surprising momentum that she showed in the New Hampshire primary, but also the difficult path forward for both her and Pete Buttigieg as the primary moves into new states. But first, we're going to talk about the Justice Department and a little drama going down there this week. On Thursday, Attorney General Bill Barr sat down for an on-camera interview with ABC News. To have public statements and tweets made about the department and about judges before whom we have cases uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job. The context for this was President Trump popping off on Twitter this week about the sentence that Justice Department prosecutors were seeking against his former confidant, Roger Stone, who you may remember was found guilty in 2019 of, among other things, lying to Congress. And it just so happens that before Barr sat down with ABC, the Nerdcast sat down with Politico's Josh Gerstein. Hey, good to be with you. To talk about all the drama surrounding the Stone case and another former Trump confidant, Michael Flynn, and what's going on in these never-ending legal cases that are stemming from the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And Josh, where are you calling in from? Uh, I am speaking to you from Florida at the moment. Oh, well, that sounds nice. It's lovely. It's lovely. So, Josh, you're here because I have about a million questions about what is going on with the never-ending saga around the Russia investigation. And this week, that means new news in the Roger Stone trial and the sentencing on the charges he was found guilty for. Can you give us an update on what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I would say this is sort of the biggest convulsion, if you will, in the Justice Department in the wake of uh, special counsel Robert Mueller shutting down his investigation and submitting his report um, to the Justice Department about 
uh, nine months ago or so. I would say it's probably, to me, the biggest event uh, since the firing of of uh, James Comey uh, by the president back in 2017. Uh, essentially, what happened was uh, there was uh, a time came in the Stone case. Stone was convicted, people may remember, uh, back in November after a jury trial. He was convicted on seven felony charges, all seven of the charges he was facing uh, that basically involved his efforts to uh, lie to and impede both the House Intelligence Committee investigation into Russian ties to the Trump campaign and eventually the FBI investigation that became uh, Special Counsel Mueller's uh, investigation. And uh, so he was convicted. He was facing sentencing in late February. And when it came time for prosecutors to file their recommendation, uh, it turned out to be a really stiff one. They recommended seven to nine years in prison for him. And President Trump was pretty unhappy with that. Uh, he took to Twitter in the wee hours of the following morning, Tuesday morning, uh, 1.48 a.m., I believe, uh, to say that he thought it was a, a, an outrage and excessive and crazy, basically, that they were uh, asking for a nine-year sentence for his friend uh, Roger Stone. Um, this caused a fair amount of consternation at the Justice Department, uh, but officials there claim that even before the president tweeted, and the timeline here becomes pretty important, they say that um, before the president said anything publicly, um, there was already concerns at the highest levels of the Justice Department that this recommendation was out of line. Uh, and there was some kind of internal miscommunication because uh, the top leaders at Justice say they were blindsided um, by this request, which uh, they thought was uh, excessive. Uh, then in the process of uh, trying to roll that back and revise it and make a new submission to the court, all four prosecutors that handled Stone's trial, uh, two of whom came from Mueller's staff, two of whom um, were just uh, regulars on the U.S. attorney's staff in Washington, uh, backed out of the case, quit. They formally withdrew their appearances is the legal term in the court case against Roger Stone. And one of those prosecutors, um, Jonathan Kravis, uh, from the U.S. attorney's office, actually quit his position as a prosecutor, um, quit his job. Uh, so there's been a considerable amount of uh, turbulence over this, to say the least, in the Justice Department, um, causing the, the most tumultuous period, really, there I can remember in the last uh, year or two. Josh, how uncommon is something like this, especially playing out in public? I'm sure, you know, just like at any workplace, I'm sure there's arguments about what to do. There, you know, Certainly there are arguments here between reporters and editors and uh, about things all the time. But watching watching it play out like this was bizarre right i mean so those are two two separate questions um what's pretty rare is for this to play out in public yeah uh normally these disagreements are hashed out behind the scenes uh it is not uncommon for the frontline prosecutors as you might imagine to maybe want a stiffer sentence in many cases than uh some higher-ups in the department might think are is appropriate um, because people's emotions do get um, tangled up in these cases from time to time. So that the fact that there would be some d disagreement or even some disagreement between uh, political appointees in the department and career personnel, I would say um, it happens. It's not totally uncommon. What is, is really uncommon is for them to go ahead and file the recommendation with the federal judge and say, this is the view of the United States government of what sentence Roger Stone should receive. And then within a 24-hour period, uh, to basically have that 
completely rescinded and reversed and file something new, have another prosecutor come in and say, no, what we really meant was, you know, he should get some sentence, but not as severe as, as <laughs> seven to nine years. Um, I wouldn't say it's unheard of, but it's extraordinarily rare. What we still don't have a clear view into is if there was some miscommunication here, precisely how that uh, played out. Because uh, most veteran people, former prosecutors I talk to say they just can't conceive of a line prosecutor going ahead and filing uh, something like this in a sensitive case without at least that person having the impression that it's been approved uh, through the highest levels of the chain of command. And so that part of this story remains a bit baffling and murky, a black box, as one ex-official said to me yesterday. And then adding another layer to this, Josh, in the middle of this whole saga, the former U.S. attorney in D.C., whose office was in charge of these cases, uh, just got her nomination pulled from a very important Treasury Department position. Right. So uh, Jesse Liu had been named as the number three official in the Justice Department, but that was abandoned after objections from uh, Republican senators to the fact that she had engaged in a little bit of pro-choice uh, advocacy, a uh, pro-abortion rights advocacy at one point. Uh, so at some point in January, she was uh, appointed again or nominated again to a Treasury Department job and then moved out of her post as U.S. attorney. And this has prompted a little bit of intrigue because after she was moved out, Attorney General Bill Barr nominated on an interim or temporary basis a fellow named Tim Shea, who was one of Barr's aides at the Justice Department to serve as the U.S. attorney in Washington, um, which is important for a few reasons. One, that office is a very, very important job. It's the largest U.S. attorney's office in the country, handles not just uh, cases involving the federal government, but all crime committed in the District of Columbia. And so uh, the other thing that made people look a little bit askance at that was at the moment, U.S. Attorney's Office there is handling a variety of cases inherited from uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, uh, including the Roger Stone case, uh, the Michael Flynn case, uh, and some related matters. For example, an investigation into Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI, um, who was fired uh, from his uh, post there. Uh, so there's a lot of sensitive investigations and, of course, suspicion that uh, Barr was trying to put someone in who is sort of a crony who would keep tabs on those um, probes. So to have this fight all play out basically within a week or two of uh, Tim Shea, this Barr deputy, taking over the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington uh, really fueled people's suspicions that uh, politics is playing an outsized role in the decisions being made at the Justice Department. Yeah, it's a it's a wild story, and it's also just it, to me it's it's wild how the you know the long time scale we're talking about here things just keep keep happening in this. And and I the one of the most interesting examples is another case with some developments this week the the Michael Flynn case, and this is this is someone who uh, he, he was President Trump's national security advisor very briefly, and then resigned very soon into his tenure. Right, and then by the end of that year in 2017, he was pleading guilty. Uh, to to lying to the FBI, and I I feel like you know in most uh, certainly in 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 the movie the guilty plea is is kind of where things end right, uh, but it, it's now uh, more than two years later, and this saga is still uh, with Mike Flynn is still continuing to uh, unravel in part because he's attempting to take back that guilty plea. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happened uh, with that in the last few weeks? 
Sure. And it's a really important case because it's kind of a marquee case for Mueller's office, right? Uh, I mean, Flynn was the highest ranking and I think the only um, sitting official in in uh, Trump's administration uh, to be charged with a criminal offense. Uh, now, granted, he'd resigned by the time he was charged, but but you might view him as, uh, you know, along with Paul Manafort, uh, the biggest quarry that Mueller's prosecutors were able uh, to catch. And so uh, it did seem, Scott, you're right, two years ago, like, you know, this was a done, a done deal. He went in. Uh, I was there the day he pleaded guilty on December 1st, uh, 2017. He admitted he'd lied to the FBI on at least a couple of occasions during this uh, interview conducted just four days after Trump was uh, inaugurated. Uh, one of the matters he admitted lying about was his contacts with the Russian ambassador. So it, it couldn't seem to be more central to the whole Russia-Trump uh, saga. Uh, so to have him essentially decide now that he's, he wants to go back on what he said, that he was tricked into pleading guilty, is uh, itself a really uh, not just unusual, but um, really extraordinarily rare uh, development. Judges don't usually uh, let defendants take back their guilty pleas. They go through a very long hearing. We call it a colloquy in court where they ask them if they know what they're doing. Uh, they ask them if they're on any medication. They ask them you know, how, if they've had enough time to consult with their attorneys. They ask them if they disagree with anything the prosecutors just said about their case. Uh, it takes usually at least a half an hour or so. I've seen it take an hour or more in some cases. And the whole purpose of that discussion is that this is viewed as a largely irrevocable uh, decision. Once you've agreed to plead guilty, uh, that's it. And you're treated as guilty and you've given up you know, all the rights that, that we take pretty seriously as Americans to have a right to a jury trial, to have a right to cross-examine witnesses, to have a right to testify on your own behalf or not. You're giving all those up when you plead guilty. So judges take it pretty seriously. And now you have Michael Flynn, uh, a very educated man, saying that in these proceedings where he pleaded guilty, he was essentially hoodwinked by a combination of Mueller's prosecutors uh, and uh, bad advice from his own attorneys at the time. And so uh, this saga has sort of played on for two years. I don't think I can run through every twist and turn. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he acquired new lawyers at one point who just have a much more confrontational, combative approach to this case. And from the time that happened last June, it was pretty clear they were going to make some move to reverse course here and try to get him out from under uh, being sentenced um, on the the you know, fairly mild but serious charge, felony charge of making false statements that he pleaded guilty now to about, uh, you know, 26 months ago. Josh, you anticipated almost all the questions that I was going to ask you about about how how common this is, about what, what happens next with all this. I guess there's just one more that sticks out to me is if, if Flynn is successful in getting out from under this, does that mean that he would then face a jury trials, you know, three three years after... Uh, this all went down. Right. So it's not totally clear what would happen if the plea is withdrawn. Uh, as it stands now, he'd still be facing this one charge that was filed against him. Uh, but if he backs out of his plea deal with the federal government or the judge declares that it was breached in some way, uh, then in theory, uh, he would be exposed to any other charges related to this that prosecutors might mm. want to bring. What Trump's role is regarding the pardons uh, I thought that it was quite possible he would have pardoned these two men 
um, much earlier in the process. He can do that at any time. He doesn't have to wait for sentencing or a guilty plea. You know, if you look at the Nixon example, you don't even have to wait for any charges to be filed. You can, you know, preemptively pardon somebody. You just say what offenses it is you're pardoning them for. Um, folks say the president can even write it out on a cocktail napkin if he wants, and that's it. It's a done deal. So it's not that hard to do if the president wants to do it. But I'm struck uh, after the events of the last two days, especially in the Stone case, that the president may actually enjoy more um, leaving the threat of a pardon out there, wielding it sort of like a rolled up newspaper. In the Stone case, he's managed to cause uh, quite a mess and you know undercut the Justice Department's position and drive one prosecutor out of the department and three others off the case. And so uh, if his desire is to cause a purge at the Justice Department or to to see the Mueller uh, team or ex-Mueller prosecutors at the department uh, flee or rein in their actions, then maybe he's getting more of a result uh, by letting it all play out this way uh, than he would if he had just you know shut this all down months and months ago uh, by issuing preemptive uh, pardons uh, for these two men and maybe anybody else uh, who'd been affected by the Mueller investigation, like his former uh, campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, who's uh, still sitting in a federal prison at this point. That's such a great point, Josh. Thank you for, for joining us to unravel all of this. You're our special correspondent for NeverEnding Stories. Uh, thanks for taking the time. <laughs> I love the stories that have been long forgotten to linger with them until they <laughs> go into irrelevance and then they somehow reemerge back up on the, on the stage. It's the great cycle of life. Thanks again, Josh. Okay, no problem. Get ready to experience a story you probably haven't heard. A story about what it was like to live through the greatest political scandal of the 20th century. The bizarre and twisted story behind Watergate. Coming to Epics is the new original docuseries, Slow Burn. Based on the award-winning podcast, host Leon Nafok explores the conspiracy theories, government deception, and stranger-than-fiction characters that set Nixon's White House on fire. Watch Slow Burn starting Sunday, February 16th at 10, 9 central, only on Epics. All right, let's step away from the courtroom now and back onto the campaign trail. We started off the episode with some tape from Amy Klobuchar's party up in New Hampshire on Tuesday night after the primary. And our reporter who was there, Stephanie Murray, the author of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook, is joining us now. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Stephanie, we heard this great tape in the intro from your experience at the Klobuchar viewing party on Tuesday night as she uh, finished in third place but totally defied the expectations in the polls. Uh, What was that like? The mood was just electric. We were in kind of a conference room attached to a hotel, and there were a couple hundred people at the party. And in the beginning, um, they had like prints and other music playing over the speakers. But as the results came in, they turned off the music and cranked up the network TV to really listen to the results come in. And as her numbers started going up and up, people were cheering. It was just like the mood was so electric. And what do you attribute this late momentum to? I'm going to defer to Alice here, and she said she felt it was really the debate. Because I think that she showed what her true colors were. I think that she made it clear, really clear, that she was electable. All the races that she's won in all the districts, that she was incredibly effective when she talked about how she had the reputation in Congress and how she had passed all these bills and how she really was very well respected. 
how she had the values that we all care about. And Stephanie, you were there at St. Anselm College outside Manchester on Friday night, uh, kind of watching this performance from Klobuchar. What did what did you think happened? That's right. I was there, and I think that Klobuchar kind of was able to make her, her pitch that she's electable, that she's tough, that she can take on her rivals. Yeah, and she, she made this closing statement, a real call to arms, that the campaign obviously thought she pulled off really well because they basically took the whole thing and just cut it and put it on TV, paid to run it as a TV advertisement. That's right. And so many people I talked to at her election night party cited that debate performance. And they also cited one of her television ads. Um, it's She lists off all the things she'd like to do in the first 100 days as president. So this momentum that she's had in the last few weeks is really palpable. And it's a lot different from the way her campaign had been going in New Hampshire even a month or two ago. Yeah, I, th- I think it seems like part of the reason everyone was so excited at this Klobuchar event on Tuesday night, it was just how how unexpected and fast this all happened. That's right. And when I asked Alex uh, if she was surprised that this happened, she said no. But that wasn't the consensus among everyone. I talked to another volunteer. He was a man in his 50s who lives in New Hampshire, and he had been out knocking doors for Klobuchar for months. And I said, you know, were you expecting this? And he turned to me and he said, absolutely not. I was knocking doors even two or three weeks ago, and nobody said they were going to vote for her. So this is a positive surprise, but definitely a shock. But now the question is, you know, I wonder, is is this the start of the party for Klobuchar or is it the end of the party? And it's really it's it's really the same question for for Pete Buttigieg as well. You know, there was the surge in New Hampshire, but the path forward at this point going into Nevada and South Carolina and Super Tuesday, it's pretty uncertain. Well, this is a great example of why rising into the top tier is kind of uh, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you're in the top tier, you're successful. But on the other hand, you know, there's a big target on Klobuchar's back now. I think one of our sources, Elena Schneider and I talked to for a story about this, said that uh, her opponents are no doubt opening their opposition research files. The pressure is on to raise a lot of money, maybe 10 to $15 million in the next few weeks to ramp up for the next primaries in or the caucuses in Nevada, the primary in South Carolina, and then Super Tuesday. So the pressure is absolutely on. And of course, the pressure is also going to be on to attract a very different kind of voter than than she's been able to attract so far. Maybe it's not on quite as high as it would be if the field wasn't so splintered, you know, it seems like there's still room to to make a splash here if you're even only getting 15, 20 percent or something like that. But but Iowa and New Hampshire are two of the very whitest states in the Democratic presidential nominating process. And and Klobuchar has has really not made particular inroads with voters of color yet. But that that's that's where that's where we're going over the next few weeks. I think that's why so many eyes are on the next two contests as well, because black and Latino voters really haven't had a say yet. And Klobuchar, I think she's going to have to face some tough questions about her record as a prosecutor in Minnesota. But speaking of Minnesota, that's one of the Super Tuesday states, so she could see a boost there on March 3rd. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the next debate turns out in this you know, kind of underdog, middle-of-the-pack role that she's been in for so long. She's been able to play as the aggressor without really ever getting getting anything thrown back at her. She might be in for something a little different next time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that, especially after she kind of went after Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg on the debate stage, and they didn't really touch her. In Nevada next week, I think uh, she'll absolutely see some barbs thrown at her. And, you know, the running, the the funny thing is, almost after every single debate, Amy Klobuchar is usually declared as one of the winners um, by the TV networks when we're watching the post-game debate shows. So I wonder if she'll be, be able to keep it up. Got it. All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for 
joining us to talk through all this. Uh, Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, that's our show. Tune in next week for another one of our debate night specials that's going to be coming out of the great state of Nevada as the primaries and caucuses move out west. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk again next week. So what's next for you? So next is to go on vacation uh, on Thursday when I drive back to New York for one week with my family. And then, you know, I take my lead from the campaign, but probably South Carolina. And so what are they going to have me do? And I don't know, but I'm a great organizer and I'm a great motivator.